well, it's a pleasure to be with you um, and to speak really on quite an unusual subject. Uh, I've never spoken on this kind of subject before. And you know, when you get a letter from somebody saying, we've got a conference, we'd like you to speak on this subject, you do sometimes think, well, why? And I suppose one of the reasons may be because I've had a little bit, and I do emphasize a little bit of experience with Christians who have gone through uh, the mill uh, regarding this kind of situation. And uh, I'll bring something of, of my thoughts about that. But it is a, a seminar, so I'm not going to speak for the whole time, and there'll be a chance for questions and comments and things that you want to add as well. But I want to begin by reading from Acts chapter 4, and from uh, just the opening part of that chapter, Acts chapter 4. Uh, there's been an amazing miracle performed in chapter 3 on a man who was uh, more than 40 years old and had been crippled from the time he was born and uh, he was miraculously healed. And then Peter preached to the people. And uh, then, as he was preaching, uh, the authorities turned up and they disapproved of what he was doing. So let's read from Acts chapter 4 and verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Well, we're going to come back to that passage later. Um, but I want to begin really by setting the scene. Uh, we need to understand, don't we, the, the situations in which we're living, the, the challenges which we're facing, and many of the things I'm going to say now will be uh, familiar to you. Um, for instance, there was a, a survey carried out about uh, attitudes of religious people uh, to making known the fact that they had a religious faith. It was reported in the Daily Mail last year, and uh, they said Christians especially were too scared to admit their beliefs. Uh, they feared being mocked or being treated as bigots. And uh, the uh, equality 
authorities, the equalities that Human Rights Commission had a major study and they found that was the case. So that ordinary Christians in their ordinary lives didn't want to make it known that they were Christians. That's got immense implications, hasn't it, for evangelism. This pressure to keep silent, this intimidation that is part of our society in the name of equality, uh, not discriminating against people. And uh, they interviewed two and a half thousand people of a number of faiths. And uh, what was striking was that it was Christians in particular who were concerned about the implications of making known that they were Christians to their colleagues in work and also for the organization for which they worked. And there is that sense of intimidation. It's the climate uh, in which we uh, live and minister. And uh, so we hear of cases where people are taken to court because uh, they have discriminated because of their Christian convictions. And uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty on the part sometimes of Christian businesses and, and indeed of churches as to what can we do, what can we say. Will we be picked up on what we've said? Um, I remember hearing some years ago of a, an elderly couple who'd contributed to a a phone-in program on the marriage issue. And uh, they had said that as Christians they believed that marriage was between a man and a woman and only a man and a woman. And in the the area they lived it was decided the police should go and visit them. And you think, well, what kind of world is this where that kind of thing happens? But it does happen. And there's confusion. And and perhaps you find yourself sometimes in a situation when you are evangelizing thinking, what can I say? Or how can I say it? And conscious that there are those who, uh, who may suddenly come and say that they're offended at what you said. And of course there's a difference between seeking to give offence and taking offence. But very much today if somebody takes offence then it's believed that you have been offensive in what you have said. And so the Equality Commission Chief Executive said What came out strongly was the widespread confusion about the law, leading to some resentment and tensions between groups, and anxiety for employers who fear falling foul of what they see as a complicated equality and human rights legislation. And he said, well, we're going to try and make it clearer. I'm not quite sure to what extent that has actually happened. And uh, so, for instance... In one case a few years ago, uh, an Equalities Commission lawyer uh, in court referred to the spread of Christian views and he used the word infected. Christians infecting others with their views. And the language is pejorative. And uh, it's something which we we label with. There have been some encouragements recently. Um, Those who preach in the open air will be encouraged Uh, by the fact that Mike Overt, who had been found guilty uh, in March last year of a public order offence on appeal, uh, won his appeal. And it's very interesting to see what the judge said in that situation. Um, Because the main prosecution witness, and by the way the judge came to the conclusion that there was insufficient evidence to justify a conviction, But he made comments along the way and 
the prosecution witness said, uh, I'm not a sinner. And the judge said, aren't we all sinners? <laughs> and uh, the same witness complained that there were some people who didn't say whether you were good or bad. And the judge said, I do that. And another main witness came forward and said he was offended. And the judge said, we can be offended by anything. Even someone's time. <laughs> or absence of a time. <laughs> I'm causing offence. You know, I apologise uh, for that. I'm by nature a tie person, but I made a point of not wearing one today. Uh, he said, if it was an offence to be offended, this is the judgment, I would be a witness a lot of the time. Now, it's quite unusual for judges to say those sort of things quite so openly, but it is encouraging. And Michael was clear, there wasn't evidence to justify a conviction. Case dismissed. And then in Northern Ireland, um, the, the pastor of one of the biggest churches in Belfast, uh, James McConnell, was taken uh, to court because he was alleged to have made grossly offensive remarks about Islam. And his comments had been put on the internet. They'd gone online, so they weren't just expressed within his church building, but they went more widely. And it was a sermon that he preached last May in the Whitewell Metropolitan Tabernacle. And it was prompted by something that had happened, where uh, a Christian man uh, had been facing death because he had apostatized. He'd left Islam and become a Christian. And uh, James McConnell described Islam as heathen, satanic, and a doctrine spawned in hell. Now those are strong terms. James McConnell is a clear, unspoken, pre outspoken preacher. And uh, he, he said after the initial court, either they try me and put me in prison or I am free to preach the gospel. This is what the judge said in his verdict. The courts need to be careful not to criticize speech, which, however contemptible, is no more than offensive. So he's saying that to cause offense is not necessarily a criminal offense. Now those are interesting judgments, and, and to what extent they will become precedents for future cases remains to be seen. But So the general climate is one of intimidation. And when Christians offend because somebody takes offense, uh, somebody disagrees with what they've said, there's the possibility of, of prosecution, uh, of being taken to the police station, of uh, being interviewed, and then of a prosecution being instigated. And, and that not only affects people who are alive, it also affects people who have died in the sense that not that they go to court, but that action is taken against them. Uh, there was an article earlier this month in the Daily Telegraph about the situation of uh, Bishop Bell, who was the, the bishop in Chichester. And uh, he died in 1958. And uh, those who knew him, including men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, spoke very warmly of him. Uh, as being a man who stood up, for instance, against Nazism, and uh, who was a, a good man and a, a godly man. And uh, there are institutions that are named after him, and his memory is revered. 
but we get a feeling of the kind of situation that happens, that, that somebody has come forward uh, and has alleged that during his life, Bishop Bell did something uh, that was wrong. And as a result of that, the, the present um, Bishop of Chichester and others with him have, have needed to investigate that allegation. Now, of course, none of us knows the truth or otherwise of that allegation. And because we are sinful people, there's no guarantee that a good and godly man cannot also do things that are wrong, and sometimes seriously wrong. So what I'm saying now is not a judgment on that particular situation about which we are in no position to judge, but the, the principles of how the thing is handled, really. Um, so uh, 57 years after he died, with no witnesses to come in his defense, and no published records of the process which condemned him, uh, it was decided that compensation and an apology should be made. The decision was made by the core group of safeguarding professionals, professionals and the bishops of the diocese under the Church of England National Safeguarding Team. And they decided on the balance of probabilities that the bishop had committed the alleged acts. They felt there'd been no transparency in the past. And uh, there was a victim who needed to be taken seriously. And really Charles Moore in his article in the Daily Telegraph is saying that this, this kind of thing raises really big questions. Presumably in the light of this, uh, Bishop Bell, Bell's name will be removed from the institutions that are named after him. And so long after his death, he will be in disgrace. When all that there is is allegations, sexual allegations, and that's the challenge for us. Once an allegation is made, then nowadays it is followed up and it is taken seriously. Now there's been a, another bishop with a similar name uh, who has gone to prison for offences which he committed. But the reputation of a man who has died has been sullied and nobody knows who made the allegation. Well, I say nobody, nobody outside those who dealt with it knows who it was, what it was, or what evidence there was that that allegation had substance. And the issue is there that, that therefore an allegation once made has substance. And that's what bears upon our uh, subject today. We, there are, it's not just Christians who are subject to this. Uh, Leon Britton, Edward Heath, uh, the much publicized case of Field Marshal Lord Bramall that's been in the news. Cliff Richard, and the way his uh, situation has been dealt with. Uh, and the fact that, that once an allegation is made, there's, there's, even though it doesn't go to court, there's no clearing of the record. So all Lord Bramwell is told that a case will not be proceeding. Um, but the, the, the case, the file will be kept open in case others may come up. I'll come back to that a little later. Um, but it's quite clear that some of the allegations are true. And the extent of abuse is horrifying. And the people whose lives have been terribly scarred by the things that have happened 
children. And uh, even some, some people who you would think are tough and, and would be able to cope with it uh, still are affected by the things that happened to them. Um, there's a man, for instance, who, who played hooker for England. And so therefore in Wales we were constantly his adversary. <laughs> and he was a tough guy. And uh, in recent years he's spoken about what happened to him when he was in school. Uh, there was a, a master who took the boys away, took away camping, and uh, regularly and systematically abused them. And, uh, and this man, as he spoke about it, now as a grown man, uh, and a strong man in many ways, was moved to tears as he spoke about the fact that he hadn't feel it, felt able to speak about what was happening because he felt he wouldn't be believed. And, and, and to see him really still touched by that decades later makes it quite clear that, that abuse is serious. And, and whilst we recognize there's an issue of maybe of allegations that are not substantive, we do recognize a, a very serious problem. And we have great sympathy for those who have suffered and uh, who have not been believed or who have not had the, the courage or the circumstances to raise uh, the issue. Um, but it's the issue of an allegation, and that, that's, that's the problem for us, uh, when something may happen to someone we know or may even happen to us. Um, let me draw some lessons from a church, a thriving evangelical church, which has gone through a situation of allegations and uh, uh, and uh, investigation, uh, and in fact, uh, have been a person has been found guilty of certain things. And the first is this: that once allegations arise today, they lead to immediate action. Things have changed. There was a time when allegations wouldn't perhaps be pursued. There's been a change in the law. There was a time when. In order for an allegation to be substantiated, some of the legal principles of the Old Testament, where there should be more than one witness, uh, was the principle on which things were uh, proceeded with or not. In many ways, that might sometimes be unjust. It may fail to take up something that really needs to be taken up. But that was a safeguard against false allegations. But it was decided some years ago that if there were a number of similar allegations, all of them unsubstantiated, that that amounted to a basis to go ahead with a prosecution. And that's the present situation in which we find ourselves. So once an allegation has been made, and the, the police and social service are informed of that, then action comes. And, and nobody knows what is going to happen until, that is nobody involved in the situation knows, until Early one morning, the police arrive at the house. A dawn raid, that seems to be the practice. I don't know why they have to do it at dawn, because they're often people who would not try to avoid the situation, but it's a dawn raid. And uh, computers are taken, mobile phones are taken, and the person is taken to the police station in order to be interviewed. And once that has happened, then... The, the whole situation has a momentum of its own. And I think Christians and church, churches, Christian workers, need to take seriously the fact that we are not anymore in a situation where we are presumed 
um, to be good people who don't do those things. In other words, the tendency of the Christian then is to say, well, I can explain. Uh, you tell me what has happened. Well, you may not be told who the, you probably won't be told who is the person who's made an allegation. And uh, the person may then decide that they're going to just answer the questions. And there will be a, a tape recorder on. And that interview will be tape recorded. And then the person will not necessarily be charged, but they will be released on, on bail. Sometimes uh, there will be conditions of that bail which can be quite restrictive. It will have an effect upon their family. It will have an effect upon their church life. It will have an effect upon the church. It will have an effect upon their employment, particularly if they work with children. And the process has begun. And an investigation... Uh, is undertaken. It will not be assumed that the person is innocent and proved guilty. I don't think you necessarily go to the point of saying that they are assumed guilty. But certainly it isn't assumed that they are innocent. If the person has made allegations, then there must be reasons for that. So in the Lord Bramwell case, there was a, a policeman who, who made a statement that he believed that the, the, the allegations were substantial and true. And that was just personally, a, was a personal judgment on his part. It wasn't made in any sort of objective way. And, and that has complicated that particular situation as far as the police is concerned. Very often, although the name may not be given at that stage, things will happen which will identify the person. A church worker has been interviewed by the police. And then people begin to work out. Who's that? What church is that? Where is it? And uh, sometimes, in the case of this particular church, trawling letters were sent out um, to uh, all the, the families that were connected with the youth work of that particular church. Really saying, uh, well, we are pursuing a case, investigating a church worker. Again, not specifically named, but clearly identified. And if you have anything to tell us, we would be glad to hear from you. And, and the idea is to build up a number of allegations which leads to the tipping point where a prosecution can proceed. And uh, even when, as was the case in the situation I'm talking about, no allegations come back, only positive responses come back, that doesn't stop the investigation. It just is simply, well, there weren't any allegations rather than the positive affirmations that may be received. And then you think to yourself, but if that happens to someone, to a Christian, isn't that the time when Christians start to gather around them and support them? Well, maybe not. Because that's part of the dynamic of these situations. Because other Christians, other churches may just sort of step back it, it may be, well, I don't want to get involved. It's nothing to do with me. And also because Christians, I think rightly so, have a respect for those in authority and a respect for those who maintain law and order, there is that feeling, well, it wouldn't be being investigated if there wasn't some substance to it. So I don't know, and I'm not saying it is true, but maybe it is true. And uh, so you find people distancing themselves from the person. It's a very lonely 
situation. There's a sense of shame. There's a sense of stigma. There's an attack upon your reputation, which is almost impossible to defend against. And uh, it has an extremely destructive effect upon those who are involved in that kind of situation. And generally speaking, the, the organizations who campaign for Christian rights and, and, and take up their case in the courts are very reluctant to take up cases that involve sexual impropriety. Uh, they don't really want to get involved in that sphere. You can understand why they don't, but, but that is the situation. So the isolation, the loneliness of the person can be profound. And then some Christians also say, well, that couldn't happen in our church. Really? Do you really? The church I'm talking about had an impeccable child protection policy. One of the best I've ever seen. It was carried out to the letter. They had a buddy system. So workers always worked in twos. Workers were never on their own. But of course, allegations don't only relate to things that happen in meetings and in church premises. It happens to, they relate to things outside as well. And uh, I see a, a great deal of this. The assumption is that if Christians get into trouble like that, even if the allegations are not true, they must have failed in some way to take the necessary precautions. Well, I think we need to take seriously the fact that allegations may come against anyone. In some cases, like some of the cases we've looked at here with Bishop Bell, they relate to things a long time ago. So I heard of a, a Christian man, uh, a justice of the peace, now in prison, because somebody came forward and alleged that he did something 40 years ago in a young people's meeting, at which his only role was to look after the tuck shop and to serve the drinks, that he had done something. And uh, he is now in prison. And he says, I didn't do it. But the court didn't believe that. I'll come to that in a moment. So we need to have good child protection policies. We need to recognize that children and vulnerable people need to be safeguarded. They really do. Because of the kind of society in which we're living. Um, but also there's an extreme vulnerability for people who are involved in uh, working with uh, children, young people, and vulnerable people. And so what happens then is a number of allegations may come in. And, and often when the allegations move from two to three, I'm not saying that's an absolute principle, but it seems to be a point that is significant, three people who will come independently or semi-independently to make their accusations, then a decision to prosecute is taken. In this particular case I'm talking about, from the time of the first arrest to the time when prosecution was decided was more than six months. And it was at the point where a third person came forward that uh, the prosecution went forward. And then the person says, well, what am I to do? Uh, well, you will need someone to represent you. How much will that cost? Well, you need a good barrister. Barristers who are really good and specialise in these kind of situations may charge £2,000 a day. Um, 
and uh, if the total cost of, of defending the case will run to anything between 50 and 100,000 pounds. Can the church help? No. It clearly cannot use charitable funds in a criminal prosecution. So the person will have to find the money to be represented. And if they are not guilty and they want to clear their reputation, then they will need not any barrister, but one who is specialist in this area and able to put their case clearly. As far as the public funds for the prosecution of the term, the public purse pays that. So in the case I'm thinking about, the total cost exceeded £100,000 and is, uh, has had to be found uh, by the person and their family. And the cost to the police and the Crown Prosecution Service, it's only an estimate, must be in the order of half a million pounds. If you take police time, court time, barristers, but that is publicly funded and, and there's no one who has to pay. In fact, if a person's uh, allegations are upheld by the court, they receive criminal compensation for what has happened. So uh, they may receive a five-figure sum of compensation for their injuries. Now I say, I'm, in all I'm saying, I'm assuming that there are people who make allegations that are true and some may be allegations that are false, but it's the success of the case that determines the, the compensation. So you come to court and what, what happened? Well, they say this, and you say that. What does the jury decide? It isn't evidence in the sense that it's proven. So the case I'm thinking about now, when did it happen? What date did it happen? No date. Where did it happen? There may be a general reference to the place. So you can't say, well, I wasn't in the country at that time. In fact, sometimes specimen charges are brought and then there are a lot of other charges linked with them but on the basis of the specimen charges the conclusion is reached by the jury and usually a lot of allegations are added or charges are added 10, 15, 20 charges uh, which again give the impression of there being a substance to the allegations although they're all sort of related to the same focus but that's how it's handled and uh, so you have a jury and they have to try the case and they're good people, people who've probably never been in court before, trying to understand what's going on and it's all a very strange situation. And uh, the witnesses will be called, always the prosecution first. And then the defence barrister says, look, don't say you're an evangelical, don't mention that word, because there's a negative view of evangelicals. In fact, there's a negative view of Christians generally. And, and the barrister, who's a very able barrister, will say that's one of the big things we've got to overcome. And you say, well, why is that? Why are Christians, churches, viewed negatively? A church I know in the, in the north of England, some years, many years ago now, um, did a survey of the area around their church. 
and they said, we're trying to introduce the church, tell you what we do, and so on. One of the questions they asked was, uh, would you like your children uh, to come to some of our meetings and to learn about Jesus and about the Bible? And quite a high number of people said, yes, we would. But a significant number said, as long as we can come with them. This is probably 20 years ago now. And at first, the Christian thought, it's really good. We can teach the children, and we can teach the parents. And then they started saying, well, let's ask them why they want to come. And they said, to make sure they're safe. That was the general reputation of churches. Because, as you think, if you're just an ordinary person reading in the media about it's happened in this church and that church, and this church leader and that church leader has done this or been found guilty of it, and the church authorities try to cover it up and all, all the things that are there in the press, and you weren't actually involved in a church, you might draw the same conclusion as they do. The churches are not safe places, despite the fact that a massive amount of work amongst children and young people is being done by Christians. In fact, Christians do the main children and young people's work in this country, in inner city areas and needy areas, in towns and countryside. Christians are giving time and pouring their life into children and young people for their good. But the, the perception is, well, of course, these sort of things do happen in churches, don't they? So as the jurors come, and, and they're not necessarily assuming, well, this man is a Christian, and he's a church worker, so, so he's, a, he's a good sort of guy. In other words, these charges are not necessarily something that could be true. And uh, so that's another issue when it comes to trial. And uh, what it really comes down to is this, and this is how the police present the case. They say, well, this person alleges that, and this person alleges that. There are three allegations or more, and this person says it didn't happen. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, who do you believe? Now, the press will go to town on the prosecution case. That will be written up in vivid detail. I don't know which paper you read, but there are papers that really go to town on that. And uh, the, the person who comes out of court will be photographed, almost always looking shifty. You know, a picture conveys something, doesn't it? These allegations, the prosecution case says, and they sum it up, and then you've got this person walking up, or perhaps they walk out and they smile because they're nervous of all these photographs being taken. And they says, ah, look at that smile, not taking the case seriously. They're taking it very seriously. They're overwhelmed by it and don't know what to do. But the issue is, gentlemen, gentlemen and ladies of the jury, who do you believe? There are a significant number of Christians, including many Christian youth workers, who have been found guilty and now are in prison. I don't know whether they were guilty or not, but I know that defending yourself against that kind of allegation is extremely difficult. And uh, that it is likely that a Christian, a church worker, a, uh, a person who's got a reputation as a Christian will possibly, probably be at disadvantage in the whole process. 
so that personal reputations, church reputations, are destroyed. And another aspect of our modern world is that in a case where somebody is found guilty and then is cleared on appeal, in the case I'm thinking about, that's what happened. Uh, The person went to prison, served quite a long time in prison, waiting for their appeal to be heard. The appeal was won. And uh, he was released. No reporters attended the appeal court. It wasn't reported. It wasn't said. Do you remember those headlines two years ago, 18 months ago? Well, we've got to say the Court of Appeal has decided that didn't happen, although there was a retrial ordered. And those details, the negative details, remain online. So when you search the name, you can find them. There, is, there are now possibilities of asking for them to be removed and them having to remove it, but there are certain organizations, news organizations, that are very reluctant to do it. And you may find that the negative reporting is there. And a bit like the apologies you see in newspapers where they wrote something that was wrong and then they make an apology on page 57 in, in 0.6 yeah, font. That, that, that's the way it is. And pump it. So it's there. It's a record. And, and it, it's there in the search engines because even when you delete it, it, it's sort of there. And the reputation remains. And, and sometimes people in the community perhaps know the person. They know the church and they don't know what to make of it. But the court procedures have gone on. And uh, they say, well, perhaps there was something in it. But it seems strange because we know the people. Our children went to that church and they had a great time there. And the people were so kind and they gave their time and their life. But, well, this is where it's, it's ended up. And if you then decide to appeal, well, you'll probably need another £50,000 to go through the right to appeal and the actual appeal process. And the costs keep stacking up. And there's just a limit to how much people can say. So the advice to this particular person from the first uh, legal person who came to give advice, who was being consulted because they had in another case, not involving a Christian, managed to secure the dismissal of the charges against that person. And they came and looked at the details and said, my advice to you is plead guilty because you'll have a lesser sentence and it'll all be dealt with more quietly. There won't be the publicizing of all the details and after a while you'll be able to get on with your life. And the man said, but I didn't do it. How can I plead guilty to that which I didn't do? But that was the pragmatism of the the legal process. So knowing what happens if an allegation is made should stir us to say, well, we need to be very careful and to recognize the danger of the situation that we are in. Now, I want to go back to Acts 3-4 now and just draw some points out of uh, this. I don't actually want to steal Roger's thunder, actually. <laughs> are you? Oh, really? Oh, well, I'll... I'll, I'll no, I'll crumble all over it now. <laughs> yeah, Roger sent me his notes, so I just uh, looked at them. And, yeah, I, I won't go too far in this. My time's almost gone. I want to open the questions. But 
the early Christians were in a hostile situation. It was only a matter of weeks since the Lord had been condemned. It's interesting, isn't it, in Acts 4, where uh, Peter and John and the man who was healed are actually brought before the court. He was put in prison overnight on the day that he was able to walk again. And they sort of say, Annas was there, and uh, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, we know these names, because they were there when the Lord was condemned. They're the men in power. And, and uh, well, as they say themselves, these are just ordinary guys. That's all they are. They're Galilean fishermen. And they're in the big city. And they're being interviewed by the big court. And I suppose I'll just make one or two points so as not to anticipate what's coming this afternoon. I think we need to be careful not to harden our message because of opposition. That's our temptation, isn't it? We're feeling under pressure. The world seems to be going further and further away from God. So we're going to emphasize strong points to try to awaken people to their situation. And as you read through what Peter has to say, he doesn't do that. Uh, for instance, they know that Peter had failed. The news of Peter's failure must have gone around Jerusalem, that one of the leading apostles had, had failed so miserably. So he, in chapter 3, he makes no secret of the fact that these people have been responsible for the death of Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released. You killed the author of life. So he, he's quite plain. He makes those statements. But then he makes this statement in verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. What an amazing statement. We know from the Gospels how the leaders have been plotting for ages uh, to arrest Jesus, to falsely accuse him, and indeed to have him put to death. But Peter says you acted in ignorance. You didn't know what you were doing. And when he speaks about repentance in verse 19 of chapter 3, he says, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he might send the Christ. Turn. Repentance is a, a gospel response. It's the point where I say I've done wrong and I turn back and I want to put it right. Um, when I was teaching some years ago, I be in a class and I'd see a boy talking and I'd say, Jones, stop talking. And he'd say, I wasn't talking, sir. <laughs> you were, Jones, I saw you. I wasn't, sir. You know, after he denied it three times, I was beginning to wonder whether I was still compass mentis and whether I'd actually seen that happen. <laughs> but, but when a boy says, I'm sorry, sir, I shouldn't have done that, it's like a breath of fresh air, doesn't it? You know, when, we're a when you're a parent, you know, and you're saying to your child, you did that, didn't I? didn't. You did, didn't And then they come and say, I'm sorry. I did. That, that's repentance. It, it's contrition. It's a broken heart. And what happens when you have been responsible for killing the author of life? Well, if you repent, your sins will be blotted out as if they have never been there. And that's the message of the Gospel. And Peter, under great pressure, has this lovely, gracious message 
In fact, he, he comes to the end, he says, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And you think, well, if somebody only picks up a few sentences I say in proclaiming the gospel, wherever that might be, I want them to know that whatever they have done, there is forgiveness. And that God will bless them in Jesus Christ, whatever they have done. And I want them to go away with that impression above all others. But there's that temptation sometimes is to harden. So I'm sometimes in prayer meetings and I hear people praying for the world. And I don't generally open my eyes in a prayer meeting. But I sometimes open them to have a quick look around in the hope that there are no non-Christians there. Because they wouldn't get the impression that we love them. And that we were longing for them to come to know the Lord. And that's because I think we've hardened. Because the world is hard to us. Peter doesn't do that. And he actually, it's an act of kindness. That's what he says to the Sanhedrin. Have you really called us to account for an act of kindness shown to a cripple? Is that what this is all about? Charge? They were kind to a cripple. And actually when they come to say, what are we going to do? They say, we can't deny it. Everybody knows that it actually happened. And the kindness of God, the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel, the kindness of the message that we proclaim, the attitude of the messengers who bring that message is, is so important. And so we mustn't fall into this, well, they're all against us. And therefore to harden. Because if those who were responsible for killing the author of life could have their sins forgiven, how much can people in our society who also don't know? Isn't it amazing that Jesus on the cross prays, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And if you've ever preached or spoken that passage, you're bound to ask the question, what does that mean? Does it mean they don't know what they're doing to him? Yep, they don't. Does it mean that they don't understand their own actions? Well, yes, in a sense, he's saying, forgive them. Peter says the same thing. You acted in ignorance. Mm -hmm. We thought about the importance of children learning the truth in the last session. People don't know. And all the propaganda that goes out tells them it's okay. When inside their conscience is, is troubling them. And the gospel comes as balm to those who are going astray. And of course there's tremendous courage and prayer that comes out in, in, in these chapters as well. But we'll come to that later in the day. Let me just draw some very brief conclusions. First of all, we must maintain our personal integrity. It would be foolish to believe that Christians are exempt from temptation in a world that is full of temptation. And that applies to our public life and our private life. Pornography is a massive issue. Not only for non-Christians, but for Christians too. And the temptations in the whole area of morality. In how we conduct ourselves. In the words that we say. Paul writes to, Tim, to Titus and says, In everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teeth, show integrity seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed 
because they have nothing bad to say about us. That's not to say they don't say about us. There's nothing they can legitimately accuse us of. Remember a young man I knew who involved in open, was involved in open-air ministry. And I was always struck by his amazing politeness. Someone would ask a question, sometimes in quite an aggressive way, and he'd say, thank you very much, sir, for that question. I'll do my best to answer it. I thought, wow, he must at times want to say something different from that. <laughs> but he was always polite, always gentle. Uh, a great example, I felt, of what to do. Now, we need to be wise. I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. You know, if you've ever seen sheep going into wolf territory, they, they're timid by nature anyway, but they, they see the wolves and they just don't go anywhere near them. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. We need to be wise, not simply to, to outwit the society we're in, but just to be conscious of the dangers and not to put ourselves or others in danger. We need to be courageous. Acts 4 brings that out. The great thing they pray for is boldness that they might speak the word of God. And when the, the, the building they're in is shaken, the main thing is not the building was shaken, but they were boldly speaking the word of God. Uh, all of them. Even though there's this intimidation that Christians feel. And then we need to be willing to suffer. There is suffering for a Christian. We may have enjoyed privileges in Britain for some years, but they're not there now. We're in a much more normal situation now, where Christians are ready to suffer for their faith. And uh, it's often in suffering that the reality of our faith shines through. It doesn't feel like that to us, but God gives grace. And uh, so Peter says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And that, that's the grace that he gives, even when we may be uh, unjustly treated. And in it all, we maintain our personal integrity, we're wise, we're courageous, we accept that suffering may come to us, but we want to preach the word, we want to preach the gospel, and to be prepared in season and out of season. As I heard a man explain many years ago now, be prepared in season, even when it's out of season. You know, be unseasonal in that sense, even when everything's against you, be in season, rather than in and. But uh, that's what we ask God to give us, to give us freshness, to give us a love, to take away our fear, and uh, to open the hearts of people that they might know the Saviour. I'm going to stop there, otherwise we'll have no time for questions and comments. And that's not my intention, so...